Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Today I speak with Chris Willen, a multi-award winning travel photographer and nature enthusiast whose warm, captivating stories of places and people span over 20 years and 90 countries. Born in Uganda and raised in Liverpool, Chris now lives in Catalonia, where he lectures at the Universitat Autonomo of Barcelona and works from a large studio in the heart of the city. Having collaborated with some of the world's most iconic photographers at the legendary Magnum Agency, his photography has taken him around the world, traversing the realms of advertising, travel, TV and film, as well as NGO, editorial and corporate assignments. With clients including The Times, Condé Nast, BBC Worldwide, The Nature Conservancy and the Arts Council UK, Chris has also had solo exhibitions at the Tate Modern and the National Theatre and has received the World Responsible Travel Award for Photography. A contributing creative director of photography at Green Traveller Productions, Chris's work also shines a light on sustainability through the lens of film, photography and writing, and his passion for the living world is what first drew me to speak with him here. In this conversation, we explore stories of empowerment, sustainability and change, and how our capacity for curiosity and attention can reconnect us with the people and places we encounter. Chris, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. My pleasure. It's lovely to be here. So I'm going to start with a big question that I invite all my guests to have a shot at. Um, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now from your perspective, perhaps as a photographer and someone who is deeply passionate about sustainability and stories? Well, I think there's two sides to it. At the beginning of the, the first lockdowns here in Spain, I remember posting something on social media where I'd actually contracted COVID-19 whilst I was away uh, on location in Dubai. I was pretty ill with it, I have to say. And then as I gradually recovered, we were obviously in quarantine. So I was unable to leave the house. That then passed to my wife and my two kids. So we were still on quarantine, which just got extended and extended. And within the building where I live, we have a communal terrace, which has pretty much remained unused for years. But it was having read an article saying that, you know, we all needed vitamin D to, to stay healthy uh, with regards to COVID. I thought, well, I need to go up to the roof and get some sunshine. So I started building a garden up there. And it was an incredibly beautiful time given the circumstances because the city, Barcelona, was at a, a real standstill. And for the first time, I could suddenly hear not only distant bird song, I could actually recognize the birds that were singing. It was just incredibly beautiful. So I posted something on social media, which was a, about hope, I suppose. You know, I heard the birds sing today and there was no traffic and it was, it was pretty beautiful weather, I have to say. I said, you know, if you're the religious type, think, you know, olive branch and dove. And if you're not, just think of the the smell of uh, 
anywhere in the world after the summer rain has stopped and you, you get this incredible smell which kind of fills you with hope and, and, and beauty. And that's certainly how I felt a year ago going into this, that maybe this was an opportunity to, for us to slow down and to look what we really have in our lives. And I lived with that hope for quite a long time. I still have that hope, actually. But watching the various lockdowns be released the thing that's been glaringly obvious to me is people chomping at the bit to get back to the old ways, which has been rather disappointing. And I hope that's just a momentary thing. Mm. You know, we like our pleasures. We like to go to the pub or to the bar or to eat out on a terrace. I hope people remember what we've been through. Uh, my sign of hope was before the numbers of global deaths really skyrocketed. So I don't think my need to hear the birds sing is anything in comparison to the global losses that people have suffered. You know, it's an absolute tragedy. But coming out of it, I think we need to have a glimmer of hope to, to, to hold on to. So I'd see that that's the world's position at the moment. I couldn't divide it into sectors of society. I just think we probably all go through both feelings on a constant basis, the need to get back to normal, to get started, but also the need to address some of the things that, you know, we have yeah. obviously been unhappy with for a long time, just based on the model that we live within. And so thinking about that then, because obviously I remember the the sound and the excitement of, of hearing birds and also the swift. So I actually live on the same road as you, which is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> but on, uh, on the bottom of, uh, well, where Travesera de Gracia and um, our street cross, there were no cars. And I remember this time last year, in the mornings, the Swifts would fill the, the street and they would come and circle in the centre of this intersection. And you could see them just outside the window. It was outrageously exciting to me. I mean, I always love flying beings. But then in the evenings, you'd get the bats doing pretty much the same route. So it's the Swifts and the bats. And just how exciting that was. And of course, this year, even though there's a curfew, the Swifts have stayed way further up high ahead. And the bats, there's only a few of them that come down the street and, you know, there's so much noise pollution and proper pollution that it just seems like a world away. So I guess bearing in mind where we are now and where we were then, what are some of the ways or places that you find meaning at the moment? I'm a traveller. I spend large portions of my life travelling to other countries and taking photographs. Uh, so I had this need, you know, to to get moving. And I, you know, realized through quarantine, I erroneously hadn't documented my lockdown experience. I'd dedicated my life to planting tomatoes and <laughs> cucumbers and things, but it, which I really enjoyed, I have to say. I just realized I hadn't touched my cameras for months. Uh, there was also a need to try and feel fitter and stronger again. So I essentially started walking rather aimlessly, rather large distances, and began to enjoy the empty spaces, uh, the fact that everywhere wasn't mobbed with tourists and there weren't four cruise ships in, in the city at the time. And I started, you know, as, as I would, starting taking photographs with my phone because it was just part of the walk, really. And then started to recognise that the pictures I was taking with my phone were rather good, and I thought, it's a bit of a shame to do this on your phone. You, sh you should use a real camera. So because of the, the inactivity, the inability to travel, and certainly the lack of commissions to go and travel, I had time on my hands. So I was back in the studio 
And I've started going through old negatives. And I always think that a really good place to restart something is to go back to where you started in the first place. Mm. So I decided to get out the oldest rolls of film that I could find and start scanning. Because at the time, as a, an embryonic photographer, and with very meager resources, I could often afford to roll my own film, which I'd buy kind of bulk canisters of it, and you'd have to go into the dark room and roll them into little canisters to fit into the the, the camera. Mm-mm. But I, And I could afford to develop it, but I, invariably I couldn't afford to print it all or do contact sheets. That was another piece of equipment which I didn't have. So I started going through some of the first photographs I ever took most of which I'd never seen. I'd certainly never seen them as a positive. And I just thought, well, look, I'll look at that. And the thing I noticed was the kind of the hunger and the ability that I had as a young man to photograph on the street. Um, You know, we're all rather more courageous when we're kind of 21, 22, and can probably defend your corner as such. So it was the big glaring difference between what I was doing now post-lockdown with a camera. I noticed there was a huge distance between me and the subject matter. Had I lost the confidence to really get mm. close to my subject? I used to do an exercise with various students I've had in further and higher education over the years. And I always used to call it one step closer. So suddenly I was now applying my own exercise on myself. And what would the reaction be? So I started doing that. And within probably about two and a half weeks or so, I suddenly started to get the rawish pictures that I'd taken as a novice mm. with no training and had kind of not had to think about anything technical, which is how I started because I didn't understand anything technically when I started. <laughs> I just wanted to take photographs. Mm. And, you know, I'd end up with terrible exposures and some of them were blurred and shaky. Uh, but because years and years later, you know, that becomes second nature to me. The quality of the images I started to produce was great. Great for me. I'm probably not the person to say that, but I certainly enjoyed the process. So that started this whole process and think, okay, well, it can't just be pretty pictures. What's it about this story? And it was about lockdown and something that we now take for granted, everybody walking around in masks and socially distancing and long queues outside. Primark, for example, which always bemused me. And I, I ended up with a, with a set of pictures that I'm kind of quite proud of, but more proud of the fact that I learned that I hadn't lost the hunger and the ability that I'd had as a 21-year-old. I hadn't trained it out of myself, which is, I think is always a danger in any creative process. There's a very famous, I don't know if it's very famous, but it's very famous to me, poem by Robert Graves called Ode to an Unfortunate Artist. Um, And it's the story of a guy who's a very talented, fine artist. And one day, whilst I think he's talking on the phone, he doodles a comic rabbit and discovers that the comic rabbit is a success and then spends the rest of his life doodling the comic rabbit. That becomes his life's work, which he never meant to do. And it's a very short poem. And I've always held that in, in my head. You know, it's a real danger for all of us that we you know, this pays the rent, you know, it's kind of easy, I'll just do it. And I've never been happy with that. I've always wanted to probably push myself a little bit too hard at times and overly critical, but it becomes my drive. So in fact, I'd probably killed and cooked the comic rabbit in that period. (laughs) (laughs) That I still had the hunger to try and express myself and not just look at the bottom line, you know, how much to get paid for that job. So it was a a very beautiful period. 
And recently, you know, it's how we met. That's become with a companion. I decided having been a dog owner as a, as a, a teenager and absolutely loved the time with my dog, I'd never done it. I'd always been everywhere and having a dog was completely irresponsible. Then I focused on my, you know, my family and my children, but it now seemed the perfect time. Um, it was kind of pushed onto me slightly, and I thought, well, I best em- embrace this. <laughs> and he's become my amazing companion. Sadly, the result of it is that on my walks, I have less need to take photographs. It was all oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was all an excuse just to go on long walks and have a think. <laughs> Um, so I don't have amazing guilt that I think, okay, I need to divide the dog walking time up with the <laughs> get back out and shooting pictures time. And as he gets older, you know, he'll probably be able to accompany me on them and he, you know, he'll, he'll be just part of the team, I suppose. Oh. So yeah, that, that's, you know, been my post lockdown experience and still chomping at the bit to be allowed to travel with the whole uh, repercussions of Brexit. Mm-hmm. I've been un- unable to travel because I was unable to come back into the country awaiting the arrival of my brand new identity card. Um, mm. But I did manage to pick that up two days ago. So in oh. theory, <laughs> I'm allowed to travel again now. So I'm curious then, you've, you've had such experience working as a photographer, but also you're very involved in movements around sustainability and regeneration, both locally and abroad. And I'm curious, what is it that moved you towards marrying these two fields? Well, it was two events, really. I'd, uh, I'd been very fortunate to be commissioned to go to India beginning of the 90s to photograph a burgeoning tourist area in Goa, the old Portuguese enclave in India, mm-hmm. uh, which had famously been a magnet for the hippie movement in the 1960s. So when I arrived there, you know, it was very definitely still there, you know, lots of people who had just literally disconnected from society and set up alternative communities, etc. And at the same time, a burgeoning small tourist industry, small hotels, family run. When I first arrived there, it was just amazing for me. I'd never been to India before. And I got up really early in the morning and the walk down, I thought there's an incredibly long beach that starts in a place called Baga and goes right the way down to a place called Sinkadim. And it's probably about maybe 15 kilometers. Uh, Don't quote me on that, but it felt about 15 (laughs) kilometers. (laughs) So I just thought I'd just do a point to point at sunrise. So as I was walking out my tiny little hotel, alongside the road, there were people living there and people were cleaning their teeth and chewing their betel nuts and there was the smell of charcoal burners as people were cooking breakfast. And I emerged onto this beach, which did have a couple of hotels, but tiny, a couple of kind of shack bars on the beach. And I walked and I walked and I walked and pretty much the only obstructions on that walk were the occasional fishing boat. They have these great big dugout fishing boats in in Goa, either that or a gang of stray dogs or quite a lot of cows. And it was an absolute pleasure. There was a a shipwrecked tanker out in the bay somewhere that apparently had been there for years, which provided an incredible backdrop, you know, to see the, the, the contrast between pretty much coastal rural life and the burgeoning monster of industry Mm. anyway that was that it was an incredibly pleasurable trip i made friends with the family who owned the hotel and ended up lifelong friends with them 
And I ended up going to school with their kids and <laughs> just wandering around, basically. And it was an incredibly beautiful experience. Anyway, many years later, I was recommissioned pretty much to do an update of the shoot. Oh, wow. And I went to this. I thought, okay, I'll just do the same. I'll just go and do an update. I'll do exactly that. I went to the same point to do the point to point along this beach. And after about 500 meters, mm -hmm. I gave up because I was literally having to step over sunbed and sunbed and sunbed and sunbed. You just couldn't move. Mm. And there was almost no gaps. And it just horrified me thinking that the pictures I'd taken 10 years ago, which brought one of the first large British tour operators into the area, had promoted a destination to the point where it was almost unrecognizable. And, you know, I suddenly had this incredible feeling of guilt thinking, you know, you're part of this. You sold this as paradise. And this is what happens when you don't look after paradise. So I came back from the trip feeling guilty. I hadn't really achieved any of the pictures that I'd achieved on the first trip because it was essentially missing the beauty. It was, you know, it was a scarred landscape. And I attended a talk. No, in fact, I think I was photographing it. It was an event in London hosted by Virgin Holidays. And they announced that Richard Branson was going to be financing an initiative in the Caribbean to try and attract young entrepreneurs into the world of travel, tourism, or just business in general, mm -hmm. and that they would fund it to, you know, X number of dollars. And I thought, well, look, the lady who was presenting, I thought, well, I'd quite like to be involved in that. I'd like to give something back to the, to the destinations that I felt I'd been a part of destroying. So I approached them and said, look, I'd really like to get involved. Uh, you know, I don't really want a payment for it. I'd just like to get involved. So I did that, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah, um, I had to go to Jamaica and photograph something that didn't yet exist. Wow. Uh, the, the, the future project was called the Branson Centre of Entrepreneurship, but they needed to promote it on the island so people would apply or come and see what it was all about. Mm. So they had nothing on the ground at all, but they needed images that would support what could possibly be in the future. So... I just wandered around and looked for people who could potentially be an entrepreneur and they didn't realize it. <laughs> and it was an amazing experience. I remember, you know, you could see the problems once I started doing that because there was no production team and I wasn't given any contacts. I just wandered around. And I was in a market area which has, had essentially serviced the tourist in industry and especially cruise ships that were coming into Montego Bay. And I'd kind of evaluate each day what I'd photographed and who I'd photographed. And I, I tend to take all names and contacts and uh, try and send people copies of the pictures that I'd taken. And they were all essentially women. Hmm. And I thought, there's no guys here. So the next day I went back and I was talking to one of the ladies in one of the craft stores. I said, where's all the guys? <laughs> and she said, well, they're either dead or they're in prison. Wow. And it really brought home, you know, the, the problems of a tourist destination, you know, that Jamaica, for all of its beauty, is riddled with crime and the lack of opportunities. And so it was at that point, uh, you know, I suddenly realized it's not just about the environment, it's about communities and opportunities and choice and good management and education. And I tried to embrace the concept of it as a whole with no academic background at all, just how it felt on the street, really. Mm. 
And that kind of cemented my relationship with the lady who had launched that, then moved and went to work for the Travel Foundation. She, she became the CEO of the Travel Foundation. And I'd already done a couple of quick jobs for them, but nothing with any real meat on the bones. So suddenly, you know, they wanted me to engage a lot more. And I was really up for doing it to the point where it didn't really matter how much I was going to earn from the job. I just wanted to do the job. And I had enough commercial work coming in, which was the kind of the dark side of it, to be able to have the freedom to say, yeah, look, how long will it take? Well, I've no idea. I'll come back when I'm finished. And it's a great freedom to have that. And it became more and more my reason to be, that I would do the commercial jobs. And I, I think I'd, you know, I'd do a reasonably successful job. They certainly paid me to do it. But the big focus in my mind was on my work around sustainability and responsible travel. And it, it, it continues to be the same. You know, I'll, the research that I will put in beforehand is considerably more than photographing a traditional tourist destination because I know what they want to see for that. And it's not particularly what I want to promote. So one of them is quite superficial and the other one needs to have a lot more depth in. So that was really my introduction to the world of sustainability and responsibility in terms of being a traveller. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because especially now as we live in a, a world where our social channels are replete with just image after image after image, most of them doctored. When you see these images of perfect beaches and paradise found and the rest of it, you forget that actually these are generally not how they exist for most of the year or during the height of tourist season. I had the, the fortune of being able to visit Menorca some time back. And one of the interesting things, some friends of ours that live there, they, they own a business there. They took us to a beach and on the edge of this beach, it's a very small bay, there's this short kind of cliff. <laughs> and they told us, oh yeah, this is where people will sometimes queue to take photos with their backs to the camera facing the bay towards the setting sun. And there'll be a queue of people waiting to line up to take this shot at sunset with this idyllic scenery behind them. And you, of course, you don't see that part of it when you see the image on your Instagram feed. But it's this kind of sense of wanting to capture something, which by the, the very fact that you're capturing it in a certain way, so for instance with you and you're describing all of those uh, sunbeds stacked like sardines next to one another, this desire to capture something in a certain way, to capture an experience or to be in this paradise can actually mean that we end up damaging it or not enjoying it or not connecting in it in a way that's satisfying. I mean, I guess, what what role do you think photography can play in society today in terms of how it enables us to better connect with the living world and what we might want to experience within it? There's, there's two approaches to it, really. The, the great British photographer, Martin Parr, I don't know whether you're familiar with his work. Uh, if you describe your scene in Menorca, you know, he would actually stand behind the crowd and he would photograph that crowd yeah. and the, absurd, <laughs> the, the absurdity of it. And he has some incredible pictures. He actually did a book about tourism and he, he's recently done one on Benidorm. And it's pretty harsh. It's a, you know, it, it's a harsh view of how we react to destinations and monuments, etc. Uh, so that's one approach. It's it's beautifully ugly, mm. um, the way he photographs things. You know, he's, it's you have to stop and think when you look at his work. I don't think I'm quite tough enough to do that. And I, 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 I still have this incredible hope it'll be all right in the end. Uh, so I, I'll you know, have the approach that I will look for 
an ever-reduced beauty within these places with a vague attempt to try and show to people, look, just stop. Have you seen how beautiful this place could be if you didn't do that? So I will still, you know, I, I'm inherently attracted to to beauty in its many forms. I'm not talking chocolate box beauty, <laughs> just things that I think, wow, that, that's incredible. And I'm always drawn to it. I'm not sure why at the time. I tend to leave the house knowing what type of picture I'm going to take today, but I've no idea what it's of. It just is a feeling and then I'll go out and almost find it. So I'm not a great creator of images at all. You know, I'm, I'm more, more of a fisherman, I suppose, that mm -hmm. I know that if I put this type of bait on, I stand a chance of catching this type of fish, rather than the guy who can go in the studio with a blank canvas and build things up. I think, you know, it's my life uh, as an observer, an observer at best and at worst of wire. I really feel as though photography has given me a passport to stick my nose in other people's lives. <laughs> and I thoroughly enjoy it, but I have to remind myself, you know, that this has to be done with utmost respect. And I know through the, the people I've met over the years, I very, very seldomly upset anybody because I make sure that the human contact is, it's probably greater than the photographic contact I have. You know, I remain friends with people. I say, I'll send you a print and they'll get a print. And we end up sitting down after I photograph them and talking or, you know, we become friends on social media. <laughs> I think the role of photography within this changing world are those two things, you know, to stop people and say, look, we're going to lose all of this. Or to brutally show people that this isn't in the future, this is happening right now, you need to address it right now, this is mm. absurd, the way we act. And I, I think that on a rather polemic way of describing it, I think they are the two choices, really. Of course, there's a million shades of grey in the middle, but I'm, I'm certainly on the stop, have a look at this, you don't want to lose this because it's irreplaceable. Yeah. So as a travel photographer with this passion about the natural world, what are some of the success stories that you've encountered over the years in terms of more ecological, sustainable forms of tourism? One of the nicest ones that I've worked on, because it kind of went on a whole journey, I was asked to go out to Sri Lanka uh, post-tsunami in an area called Bentota, which had lost you know, a huge swathe of its male population. Because of the tsunami, most of them, you know, were, were fishermen or were, were coastal workers. And, you know, it was pretty bereft of, of, of hope. And this was with the Travel Foundation, actually. They'd come up with an initiative in the hinterland away from the coast was mainly where, you know, most people lived. So you'd have these incredible, very expensive hotels on the coast. And in maybe a couple of miles inland, you'd have these small villages and the Travel Foundation had done a study, and it was all about bringing a source of income to local communities. And it was seen as being a possible solution on a small scale that, you know, to look at traditional crafts. Mm. And they produced this incredibly beautiful lacework in this part of Sri Lanka called Berula Lacework. And what they, the Travel Foundation had done, you know, that they'd managed to highlight this and realize that the problem with it is where do they sell these beautiful pieces and at what price? And traditionally, these pieces of lacework, some of them large, some of them small, were being sold in the four or five-star hotels at huge prices. But the ladies back in the villages were getting a dollar a piece. 
And it was a middleman, basically, or a series of middlemen. And this happens worldwide. You know, they'd go off into the villages and they'd say, okay, how many pieces have you got this week? I've got 50, so there's your $50. And they would perhaps be going three, four, five hundred $500 a piece in these five-star hotels. Crazy. And the ladies had no way of accessing that market. They couldn't walk into a hotel because of security. Uh, nobody would want them in the hotel unless they were having some kind of folkloric evening. Uh, so... The Travel Foundation funded the education in the UK of a local young guy and basically just educated him in business. And he finished his studies and he toed and froed from the, from the UK to, to Sri Lanka. And suddenly he became the, the representative mm. for the communities of ladies. And he, he was allowed to go into the hotel and have a meeting with the commercial manager or the director. And suddenly the flow uh, of work, essentially, that the ladies would be in these incredibly beautiful small communities around some kind of a household or a garden or a little workshop, and they'd be making these pieces throughout the day, and they would be collected, and the chap's name, Ruan, would then take them around these incredibly expensive hotels, (laughs) um, and they would still be sold for the same price. The difference was they were no longer getting a dollar a piece. They were actually getting the market value. Mm-hmm. Consequently, people then saw what they were doing because they were now at an international shop front just through people traveling to these hotels. Where one of the ladies was spotted by a French fashion designer and they decided to work together. So that the culmination of, of that, that shoot was actually going to the, the fashion show, you know, where this Berula lace was suddenly on the catwalk and a lot of the ladies had been invited to travel. To, uh, to Paris and you know they could actually see that the possibilities of their traditional crafts and you know uh, and how well received it'd be and so it, it's a very small scale project but it, it meant that what what tends to happen with small communities certainly coastal and rural communities in in, in tourist areas is they gradually die because the young people they're not going to sit around and just you know do nothing. So they all go and find work in the hotels and then they end up in dorm accommodation and they might travel back at the weekends. But essentially the heart of the, the rural areas is lost. You know, there's no future. The schools tend to empty out. So it's a way of preserving local communities in a way that it's not keeping them in the dark ages. It's actually pretty dynamic, you know, and they become involved in business and they then have opportunities. They have money to finance their education of the next generation. The consequences of a very small action like that are absolutely huge. And, you know, I definitely think that I certainly felt in my life choice is the greatest luxury that that we have. And sometimes you have to make those choices happen for yourself. And if you don't have that available to you, if you think about all the great academics in the world, Generally, why are they the great academics? Why are they the great brains? Well, because they've had the opportunity, you know, that they've had the opportunity of education. They come from a privileged background. And I often think, you know, I could be walking anywhere. I remember walking in the the Atlas Mountains in Morocco and walking into a village and you'd see all the women down at the rivers doing the washing, all the guys kind of hanging around not doing much at Mm. all. I used to think, how many potential professors are there in this village? Mm. They will never, ever have the, the chance to display their intelligence just because they have no opportunity. And I think, it's, you know, it's a global problem that we don't tap into the resources that we really have, which is it's ourselves. And it's because of lack of opportunities. And, the you know, we need to readdress the balance of uh, privilege and lack of privilege. 
Mm. And I think also you, you talk about something really interesting there. It's not only just the, the making local again the the economy, so reconnecting or connecting for the first time those communities of women with their lace work more directly with the hotels, so making it a lot more of a, a closed loop. But then also I think when we think about resources, something else that's come up quite a lot and came up in one of our previous conversations is how do we make the most of what we have to offer, whether it's water on an island or it's resources like folkloric music or whatever it might be. How do we make the most of the resources we're able to offer or the things that we need to take in order to cultivate touristic practices that actually are sustainable, that can generate well-being in terms of economic vibrancy, but also ecological longevity. And I think one of the things you've mentioned before is about the ways in which sometimes we get that wrong by, for instance, going for luxury, expensive, sometimes exploitative tourism at the expense of perhaps less destructive, more low-key bootstrapping types of tourism. I don't know what your what your thoughts on that. I think it's very destination specific. From my understanding, and again, you have to remember I'm not an academic, but from on the ground understanding, there are kind of two ways to think about it. So there's a very interesting study that was put together, I think in 2018, which I recommend people to read, which is called uh, The Invisible Burden. You can download it. I think it's on theinvisibleburden.org. And it kind of describes the problems, uh, what's accounted for and what is, isn't accounted for when we, we look at the travel industry and what is done with the profits. You know, we look at airports and transportation and communications networks and uh, renewable energy sources, etc. But there's so many things that, you know, who pays for them, what isn't accounted for, and, you know, greenhouse emissions, environmental damage, water management, and then the, the whole balance of what's the social effect of, of travel and tourism. Uh, we know living here in Barcelona, I know you live on the same street as me, I, I, I've been here for a long time. Mm. You know, when I first moved here, where we live was affordable. And I know that it's it's at least 10 to 12 times more valuable now because of the boom that Barcelona has either enjoyed or suffered, depending on which side of the, the fence you are. But I know mm. for a fact that my teenage children will never be able to afford to live in our district. So they'll be pushed out. And I think this is something that happens worldwide. It, it's very much unsustainable, not just for the travel industry, but for the whole community that, that lives within any destination, really. It, it's never really spoken about in Spain, but we're suffering the worst drought in centuries here, hmm. uh, it doesn't really get mentioned the lack of rain. No, but if you go into the into the south of Spain, and everyone will talk about you know that you need the high ticket customer. You know, uh, we need to increase prices and go for the high quality customer. Therefore, there's more money coming into the economy. It's true, you know, that you can bring great profits in. But if the natural resources aren't available, if you go to the south of Spain, there's absolutely fabulous resorts based around golf courses. But the surrounding landscape is absolutely bone dry and there are water shortages and the water is cut for local communities during the day. Meanwhile, the golf courses are absolutely fantastic. And I look at it and think, this can't be right. Mm. So there's this balance. Some countries absolutely need to focus on the quality of the tourists that they bring in and others probably need to focus more on the quantity and the 
lack of drain on natural resources, water being one of them. If you go to, I suppose, some of the, the drier countries, Sal in Cape Verde is a really good example. It's almost completely arid. I think I've seen three trees growing on the island of Sal. It's absolutely useless for farming, for grazing. There's two huge all-inclusive hotels there and absolutely everything that is fed to their guests is shipped in from Portugal. So the food miles is absolutely incredible. I can't remember the figure, but it was something like Mm -hmm. 200,000 eggs a week are brought into that hotel. Maybe that's good, but you know, they can't produce produce themselves. But the fact is that if you're from Sal, if you're a Cape Verdean, you won't see an egg for a month. You can't get access to that food. You know, how do you redress that? Okay, you could go with huge investment and go down the Israeli route and turn deserts into very fertile land. It requires a lot of political will and a huge amount of financial investment. Mm. It is possible. Israel has proved it. I think it needs to be destination specific. If you look at Africa, for example, uh, South Africa is pretty resource rich. Uh, So is Kenya, in fact. So the profit from travel and tourism tends to be profit because they have other industries to support the country. Botswana is one of them. Botswana has very few natural resources, so everything has to be imported. So in fact, what's seen as the profit from travel and tourism, it's a high ticket country to visit Botswana. A lot of it is cancelled out because they have no natural resources. A lot of it has to be imported. So perhaps an investment in local industries would be a far better way for the destination rather than just hoping that the guy is going to pay, you know, 6,000 quid to go on his safari today. Mm. How much does it cost to be able to allow him to do that, you know, to feed him at that level, to house him at that level? So I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all, and it definitely has to be looked at in terms of what the natural resources of each generation are. I'm sure there's plenty of academic studies out there that would highlight the different issues. I can only ever talk about kind of experiences on the ground. But I think the example of the eggs is such a concrete, tangible image that we can use to bring these stories alive. I think one of the, the issues with the facts and figures that are listed in these very important academic publications and studies is that they don't move people to action. I think this is where the power of photography, of storytelling, music making and the arts comes in is that if we are going to fully grasp what it means to choose to live in a way that doesn't suit the region, so whether that's having high-value tourists in an area that can't support itself or it might be some other version of overcrowding on a beach that then displaces the locals, whatever it might be case by case, for us to start asking the deeper questions. For sure. I mean, I, I have I have a perfect example. So I, I actually stayed in one of these all-inclusive hotels, and there there is so much food available. And what I was finding is that I would just be filling up my plate and filling up my plate and filling up my plate, and then finishing it, having ate an enormous amount of food and being totally unsatisfied. Probably because, you know, the the lettuce I was eating was probably about three months old already. It had been in a cold storage ship from Portugal. God knows how it it got there before that. So it actually had no taste. Mm. And then one evening, the lady who used to be one of the managers for the Travel Foundation was a local girl. And she said, do you want to come see some music up in Espargos, which is the capital? And I was staying at the other end of the island. Mm. And I didn't really want to go. It was, I've had a really long day. I'm tired. (laughs) and, And... she, you know, she was very well connected with lots of her friends and family on the island. So anything we did with her would take far 
too long because we'd go and see the cousin <laughs> first and then we'd have a quick chat on the street. But it's going to take us for hours just to get there. And it did. It took us for hours to get there. And then he said, oh, the guy's not playing until one in the morning. Uh, should we go for something to eat first? And I thought, well, I've already had dinner. We're, gonna, we're just going to have to hang around. And Espargos, despite being the capital, is a pretty sparse town. So we ended up literally sitting in a terrace of what looked like a garage, you know, somebody's where they kept the car, and they ordered some local fried fish, and that was about it, I think. And it was absolutely fantastic. So that (laughs) one plate of fish satisfied everything that probably about six or seven servings in an (laughs) all-inclusive could never do because it actually had an amazing taste. Mm. And then we walked off into a little bar, to watch this guy play. And I almost burst into tears. It was so unbelievably fantastic. And at that point, I discovered he was one of Africa's great music stars. Mira Lobo, his name is. And there he was, just playing in a local bar. He, he was from Espargos. He was from Cape Verde. And, you know, he lived there. And he just sang on a Saturday night. And I just thought, this is the real experience. They just have that one plate. It was one fish between three of us. Wow. So it's not as if we filled our boots with food. And then to have the joy of just listening to this amazing music for all of the entertainment that was laid on in the all-inclusive hotel. It, I don't remember any of it. I just remember walking past the thing. I, I really can't listen to Bingo again tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing, though, this kind of shift in what we find fulfilling and satisfying? I remember experiencing that quite dramatically coming from London to Barcelona just over four years ago and how obviously the weather being much more pleasant here, sunnier, it's drier, means that you can set out a table or a mat on a a terrace and and sit with friends or what have you or sit on a square and just the feeling of joy at having a cold beer from a can sitting on Plaza del Sol with some friends and a guitar just that this is not this costing me like four euros which is what the equivalent of three quid or something I would otherwise be spending 50 60 70 upwards of that a night on a single individual myself in a fancy bar in London for three hours of like an espresso style hit of culture, which would leave me feeling exhausted and not that fulfilled. Yeah. And yet, you know, then there's such a comparison. So I think this idea that we have to consume in order to to meet this deeper hunger. Yes, of course, we want to consume and create and what have you. But I think the quality of how we do that is something which you really have to think more carefully about, as you so beautifully described in that story. It's what happens when you do those things, you know. So your description of sitting in a little square, I used to have these kind of, they're slightly folkloric images in my head, you know, that when I've been wandering around, I was very fortunate to travel around France when I first left home when I was pretty young, and I lived in the back of a van. (laughs) And I used to watch these guys sitting alongside canals, and they're Mm. just pull a loaf of bread out of their little knapsack and there'd be some saucisson or something <laughs> and a half-drunk bottle of wine, which they'd glug out of the bottle. And it just used to look so fantastically exotic, having been brought up in the generation where everything came out of a can mm-hmm. or you just, just add milk and whisk. <laughs> it looked incredible. And so to this day, you know, if I had a chance to just stick a loaf of bread in, in my bag and a bit of cheese or a tomato and a bottle of wine <laughs> with friends, and as you say, and a guitar, that suddenly becomes a forum for so many things, you know, great ideas, 
great demonstrations of fun and warmth and love, I have to say, far more memorable than, you know, going to a really expensive bar, not being able to hear each other and feeling (laughs) slightly short-changed at the end of it. Um, And then, just to add insult to injury, then having to pay a huge amount of money to get home. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a different different lens through which to kind of see things I think so I realize we're we're coming close to time and I'd really love to ask thinking about travel and as we re-emerge into hopefully what is some semblance of being able to move across borders again what question do you want people to dwell with it's a very big question with a very slow answer I suppose Hmm. it's is this what we really want meaning how the world is you know, if we were on a ground zero or a, a day zero and you could redesign it, is this really what you'd design? Is this how it would be? I think the closest we're going to get to it in my lifetime is the COVID situation, that we have a, a window of opportunity to stop and think and restart. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>